Welcome everybody, my name is Anna Kasakultima and this is Games Now podcast. Games Now is an open lecture series run by Aalto University and we've been doing this since 2013. We have covered topics from game design, technology, business, art as well as user cultures to understand the multitude of developments within the game industry for the past decade. Our open lecture series has been inviting different game experts around the globe to share their insights on what is current in their line of work. This podcast is now looking back on those topics. Looking back. So on the Looking Back series of Games Now podcast, we are revisiting some of our lectures and reflecting with the speakers what has happened between now and then. On the first episode of Looking Back Games Now podcast, we go back to the topic of AI and games. In 2018, Julian Togelius from New York University was with us lecturing on how algorithms can play and design games. Julian is an associate professor in the Department of Computer Science and Engineering at NYU. He's also a co-founder of Model.ai. Julian works on artificial intelligence for games and on games for artificial intelligence. His current main research directions involve procedural content generation in games, general video game playing, player modeling, and fair and relevant benchmarking of AI through game-based competitions. Additionally, he works on topics on evolutionary computation, quality diversity algorithms, and reinforcement learning. From 2018 to 21, he was the editor-in-chief of the IEEE Transactions on Games. Togelius holds a BA from Lund University, Masters from the University of Sussex, and a PhD from the University of Essex. He has previously worked at IDSIA in Lugano, and at the IT University of Copenhagen. Let's go and listen what Julian had to say about his lecture from four years ago. All right, uh, welcome back to Games Now, Julian. How are you doing? Thank you, Anakesa. Um, it's great to be here. Um, and it's great to be sort of following this up um, long after. I'm good. I'm just back from like too, too much travel. And um, uh, now at the end of the pandemic, if it is the end of the pandemic. But let's hope so. Let's hope so. But yeah. um, I'm good. Yeah. So you were uh, with us with Games Now uh, lecture series in 2018 March. Yeah. So we we today we're going to go uh, go in and look what kind of we, we're going to look back. So we're gonna see a little bit of a or kind of listen to a bit of a, a lecture from 2018, and we're gonna talk about your topic. But just to refresh your memory, the title of your lecture was uh, "Algorithms That Play and Design Games." Um, is this a lecture that you? Is is this the kind of a type of a lecture that you would? do a lot or is this like a specific thing that you would do ah i mean to be perfectly honest most of my lectures are kind of variations of the same material or like cut up in different pieces with a slightly different slant because um, um that's how it comes out i tend i tend to try to take a new angle on something and then It ends up to being like 70% the same material as last time. <laughs> yeah, I could definitely go talk about algorithms that play and design games because I'm still, that's still very much of what I do. I, yeah. yeah, and still a fresh topic to you. So it's always like a, a timely stuff to talk about. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm starting to worry that it might be a fresh topic all of my life. What <laughs> uh, retire is going to be like? Algorithms are playing design games. Have we solved it yet? No, we haven't solved it. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, we don't solve it uh, during no. our lifetime. I guess not all of us listening um, uh, to this podcast is is they don't know who you are. They didn't yeah. yet watch the lecture from uh, YouTube. But please, Julian, just tell us a little bit about your background, who you are, and what do you work. So I do. Um, I'm an AI and games researcher. I work at two places, New York University in New York and model.ai in, um, we're based in Copenhagen, but we're really worldwide. Um, and basically I work on AI algorithms that play games and design games and um, um, model players and so on. And after doing that for a long time in academia, I discovered that, you know, it's hard to get game developers to really sort of, um, uh, they, they think it's really cool, but it's hard to get them to use it and, as, and actually let it sort of influence their game design and game development. So we started a startup company that's Model AI um, to basically bring these things to market. So right now I'm trying to juggle two hats um, and it's going okay, I think. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in this because I used to be interested. I am still interested in what intelligence is and how it works. And I used to, and, and I was like, hey, you can use games to sort of investigate this. Um, you can sort of do a lot of experiments with AI in games you couldn't otherwise. But then at the same time, I realized you could try to use these AI methods to make games better. And I think these two things are kind of like uh, not the same thing, but they're strongly reinforcing each other. That's super interesting. I think that even though a lot of our listeners are perhaps uh, themselves dabbling into the AI uh, area and they know lots about it, but then they, we also have the listeners that don't know too much about this topic at all. So let's have this kind of a small, and maybe for the interest for of the uh, of the specialists too, is that to you, what is artificial intelligence then? Ah, it's one of these like you know big price questions. It's a very easy question. <laughs> Very easy, very easy. You know, I it's true. I mean, I mean, I answer it all the time. But basically, um, there are lots of possible definitions. But the one, the, the the boring practical one that I think is most meaningful is that um, it's the quest to make um, machines do things that currently only humans can do and that require thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and throughout artificial intelligence, we've seen this sort of you know. People have chosen one task at a time and um, uh, and basically uh, said that, okay, um, uh, translating text or playing chess or um, um, creating images or um, playing StarCraft or um, um, navigating in a room or something like this is something that you need, you need thinking to do this. And then people um, try to think really hard about this and come up with a way that computers can do it. And then people um, look at this and say, ah, but this isn't so hard after all. Um, um, we were wrong about this requiring intelligence because, hey, watch, uh, an algorithm can do it. Um, so artificial intelligence research and development sort of proceeds um, by conquering one supposedly cognitive task at a time and then sort of the goalposts move, which is okay, which is what it does basically. So artificial intelligence is both this big dream and this big project and a lot of like concrete computer science um, techniques. Right now, there's a lot of um, um, 
there's a lot of attention to these big, deep neural networks um, that can do all kinds of fascinating things. But it's clearly not the only thing there is to AI. It's a mm. pretty rich different things. There's a lot of things happening in there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and not just games, also so many <laughs> other stuff. <laughs> nope, not just games, but, you know, the games are maybe some of the most interesting stuff. Definitely. There are many, many kind of good reasons to sort of be... Um, working in games, not least that games are kind of designed to challenge our minds. That's sort of how games work. Mm. Mm. So cognition there too. Yeah, very much, very much. I mean, we think games are fun largely because um, uh, they challenge our cognition. Right, right. So they kind of pick our brains in the right way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the, your lecture was aired on the March 2018. We all know, all know that from that point to 2022, uh, a lot of has happened. But what, <laughs> what what have you been up to? I basically during this over oh, it's over four years now. Well, you know, I got married, I had a kid, but maybe that's not what you're asking about. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's also relevant. <laughs> relevant life happens. I, I, yes. I, I sat at home a whole lot. Um, that goes for all of us, you know. And, um, um, but what I've been up to, I mean, apart from like trying to split myself up in two, so one academic me and one industry me, that both of them try to do AI and games, one one as an academic pursuit and the other as a um, trying to build a company based on this that um, sell things that game developers actually would want AI techniques done. Um I do most of my work together with uh, PhD students and other, and other lab members. And when I say I do it together, it means that I'm sort of, you know, having lofty ideas and they actually do the work um, because that's how academia works, right? Um, at least in the technical and scientific fields. <laughs> right. Um, look, I spend, I spend all, my day, all my days just talking to people. No, so I've been... Um, one of the things we've been working on, in particular, Mike Green, my recent graduate student, has been working on tutorial generation, how to mm. automatically generate tutorials for games. I think I mentioned that briefly in yes. the game yep. book, but but we did a lot more on this and trying to figure out how can you make game levels that teach specific mechanics and require specific mechanics so that, you know, you know how um, most games are designed so that you can... Um, Part of them, at least, is kind of tutorial, where basically, as you play through it, you have to learn certain tasks, and these tasks are going to, or certain skills, and these skills are going to be useful in the rest of the game. And designing this is pretty complicated. It's pretty complicated to make people see what it is they need to do, and um, and make sure that um, it can only the task can only be solved using particular mechanics, and you can't bypass them, and so on. So we've been working on automatically. Um, using basically a combination of evolutionary algorithms um, called quality diversity algorithms and models of um, of, of, of players. Um, we've been working on trying to automatically generate these um, um, such levels um, that, that teach the right thing and ways of measuring whether this is true. Um, mm. Also been working on... Um, uh, generating levels that create um, or in game variants that require particular skills, like you know, uh, you have, um, for example, if we had a bullet hell game that we're working on, that we can automatically generate things that 
would suit particular players in terms of their skill profile. And skill is not just a good you are, it could be good at tactics or you could be good at um, reactions, for example. And so you have this multidimensional skill space and you can create content that fits in that multidimensional skill space. Um, I'll also be working more on the AI side on like ways of um, making reinforcement learning algorithms be more general. Is this technique, basically, a set of techniques to solve reinforcement learning problems, which are trying to learn to act by only taking the feedback from the environment into account. So you can learn to play by trying to take a bunch of actions, see what score you got, trying to improve your policy, as it's called, um, uh, and then seeing what score you got again, and basically gradually get better. Um, the problem is that um, they typically learn policies that are extremely um, or behaviors generally that are extremely narrow, that always only mm. some sort of very, very specific task. So we did some work that got quite a bit of attention where we um, generalized um, the problem space. So to try to force um, these agents to solve not just one level in the game, but a wide variety of levels, and maybe different variations of the game to be to sort of achieve some more general intelligence. And I'm not saying your results were great, but the results, I think it got attention partly because we pointed out how hard the problem is and pointed to this kind of procedural generation of environments as um, uh, as a way to get around it. And we had quite a lot of people um, following in our footsteps there and so in various ways. It is four years and a lot of a lot of the things uh, work, happened yeah. and uh, a lot of advancements, I guess. But we can kind of continue on that track when you maybe oh, yeah. remember something more. But let's look at the snippet from the 2018 yeah. lecture. So let's look at the design and develop thing. And I want to take to take you back to the 80s, which is always a nice thing to do, at least with audiences of a certain age. Um, this is Elite. Um, it's a game that was released in the early 80s. Um, the, you fly around um, uh, in space, and you can have space battles with various other spaceships. There's a sort of very simple 3D representation, um, uh, and you can fly between stars and, uh, and the space stations, dock at space stations, and so on. There are lots of different star systems. And I mean, lots of different star systems. I think one, one of the versions had 4,096 different stars. Each star had like planets and space stations around it and lots of different spaceships flying around in that regional space. And it was really complex. And you dock at a space station and at a space station, there are different kinds of cargo and the cargo has different prices. You can make your living by trading between, trading this cargo between different space stations. And there are missions as well, where you need to um, find uh, lost spaceships and stuff like this. Um, and this thing fits in memory on a Commodore 64. Now, for those of you who were not there at the time, the Commodore 64 had 64 kilobytes of memory, so 64,000 characters. How could you possibly fit 4,000 planets or 4,000 star systems in 64,000 bytes of memory? It is like literally impossible, right? Um, the thing they did was that they used um, the code of the game as um, seeds for a random number generator that was used to construct the star systems in runtime, including 
the names of everything, of like planets and star systems and, um, and, and ships you were going on a mission for, um, and, uh, and, and the locations of everything and what kind of star, um, spaceships there were there and so on. Um, the rumor is that um, they used, they actually printed out all possible names that the name, name generator could generate to make sure there was no obscenity in there, which is surprising to me because who cares about some obscenity? They were clearly not Nordics. Anyway, so um, um, it was really, really fascinating because you were sort of overcoming this simple, um, or, or this limitation of, um, the, um, of the computers of the day by generating things um, during gameplay as it happened. Um, and you may think that this is a cute historic anecdote, but today's computers are so much more powerful that we don't need this anymore. Because look, we can, you can get a computer nowadays which literally has a million times the memory as, that, that a Commodore 64 had. So, you know, why, um, why would we care? However, that would be committing the Bill Gates fallacy. Um, the Bill Gates fallacy, 640K should be enough for everyone. Um, so actually, nowadays you have things like No Man's Sky. No Man's Sky is, a, um, uh, is essentially the direct spiritual descendant of Elite. It looks a lot prettier, but it's very similar in the sense that you fly around in a, um, um, in a, um, in a universe with more stars than you could possibly ever um, visit in a lifetime. And they're all generated as you go there, but the sort of the seeds that, they, um, um, that are used to generate them are stored away, so if you come back, you're going to see sort of the same star system being generated and look the same again. Um, this, is a, um, um, this is one very, very important use of procedural content generation, um, to generate things online um, as you play it, to make, to make big, large, I mean, big worlds possible. Um, another thing is this. So back in 1980, um, Glenn Wickman and Michael Toy at the University of California, Santa Cruz, um, wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons on their computer. However, um, they didn't want to write their own Dungeons and Dragons adventures because they wanted to play them. So they, um, um, uh, and if they already knew everything that was gonna happen, it would be no fun to play it. Also, they didn't have enough space in the hard drive to store them. So what did they do? They make this simple game called Rogue. Um, it's actually not simple, it's complex, but it looks simple. It's a beautiful ASCII graphics um, here. Um, they make this game called Rogue, where you run around in a dungeon and you sort of, um, you explore it, um, you walk through um, uh, rooms, you find treasures, you fight monsters, all these things. And every time you play it, there's a new dungeon generated. Um, um, and they did this both to sort of save themselves development time and to save hardware space and everything like this. And this was an important, very important um, part of game history because there's a whole genre of roguelike games that are inspired by this and basically the same idea that every time you play it, you get a new world um, to play with. Um, Diablo 3, for example, so take a high profile example. Um, of a very successful game. It's essentially the same game. It looks, it, it looks prettier and it's more real-time, but the core idea is that every time you play it and every time you go to a new level, you have, um, um, you have um, um, a new sort of geometry of this level, a new item to discover. 
Dwarf Fortress. Anyone played that? Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed. It's, uh, it's, I, I can't play it. I had a PhD student that actually played it for, for, um, for, um, for fun. Um, every time you start a new game with Dwarf Fortress, it creates a new world and it simulates the, um, uh, the, you know, the, the geological development of the world, the political development, the um, history of the kings and queens and even the gods and so on to give you a new sort of pantheon and a new sort of history and a new geography every time you play it. And then you can control the game down to the level where you can put different socks on each foot of, of an individual dwarf inside this giant fortress that's under your control. It is essentially unplayable, but I love it as a sort of conceptual art. Um, uh, it follows in, this, in, 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 in the same uh, tradition, but other games you might not think of, like civil, the whole Civilization series of games, um, um, where you control an empire from Stone Age to modern ages, it re really rests on the idea that every time you play it, you have a new world to explore. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the same game at all. It would be a much less interesting game otherwise. Um, Spelunky, I don't know if you played that, um, one of the best sort of um, action-focused games to come out in the last half decade or so. It's essentially a cross between Super Mario Bros. and Indiana Jones. Um, you explore these caverns and whip snakes and stuff. But also importantly, every time you play it, you have a completely new set of levels, so you, don't, you can't get away with just learning the levels. You actually have to get good at the actual game. Um, all of these games sort of rely, these are just like some, some token examples, rely on the idea that you can generate the game or some aspects of the game as you go along, but also much more sort of, you know, um, mainstream games like almost any game, this is just a token example, <clears throat> um, that features um, large areas of vegetation um, that is supposed to look lifelike, um, generates some of it um, as you go along because you can't just you don't want to use um, human resources on modeling every, every single tree because it's just too, it takes too much time. And you can't, um, you can't store all, all of that on disk. And you don't want to use all the disk space to store all that. You want to sort of generate, I mean, it's like a practical necessity to generate some of it. It's another example. The Borderlands series is also an inter interesting example because it has this sort of set of weapons or items that are sort of um, essentially boundless. All of these are examples of procedural content generation. So we're going into AI doing things related to designing and developing games. Um, procedural generation of game content, so with limited or no human intervention of game content, so not behavior on the game engine in all kinds of different games. And you may, uh, you may say that, okay, that's interesting, this is, but this already happened, as, as I just said. Um, some kinds of PCG have been around since the early 80s. So what's the point in looking at this from the perspective of modern AI? Well, because I think that the prospects of procedural content generation, um, we're really just starting to explore it. Um, there are lots of things that we would like to be able to do, but we can't. So can we, for example, drastically cut game development costs? by creating game content automatically from designers' intentions. So basically, you're a content developer, 
or you're a game developer and you don't want to do all the sort of grunt work. You don't want to sort of model every little part of this road or every character. You want to say like, hey, I want a forest over there. No, not that, um, not that big. Smaller, but with taller trees and also make it easy to hide in. And here should be a population in this village and they should be different. Oh yeah, make them, make them sort of, you know, have some conflicts between each other. Um, also, uh, you know, um, make it so that there are some rich people and, you know, you could specify things on a higher game, um, um, on a higher level. This level over here, by the way, um, try, to, um, try to make it so that you can only finish it if you have uh, bought one of the expansion packs for the game. Whoops. Um, well, not, I didn't want you to do that sort of thing, but yeah, you get the point that you could direct games at a much higher level and have the algorithms do all the grunt work for you. Can we come up with games that are in, endless? Not like in No Man's Sky, where you basically, there are like, I don't know how many billion stars, but you don't really care because they start looking a bit samey after a while. I mean, they're wildly different in colors and what kinds of creatures look there, but you sort of miss the overall structure. Can you come up with games that like, you know, give you interesting stuff? So you play the next sort of Grand Theft Auto-like game and you um, decide to go five hours in that direction and there are things there. I mean, you can be, it, it just comes up with new cities for you. And in the cities would be new characters that have their own lives and they have their stories. They have, they have their own architectural style and, and, and there are things to do there. Um, uh, and maybe it's sort of geared towards you. So the game has figured out what you want and what you can do and what you're good at and tries to sort of fix that up for you. I'm also of the opinion that humans are not very creative. Um, we like to think we're creative, but if you give a human, if you tell a human to be creative, you, they will look at some example of some, what someone else has done and they do something like it. Um, I think we could actually get past human creativity and sort of augment it a lot with sort of computer creativity that sort of gives us radical new ideas. And finally, from the standpoint of understanding game design, as a computer scientist, you learn that you don't really understand a process until you've written code that can implement that process. You don't understand sorting before you've written a sorting algorithm. I don't think you really understood game design until you have been able to sort of come up with algorithms that can design games. Let's stop there. Uh <laughs> Bold statements and great visions of future. Um, but we did in already already in this lecture we did look back all the way to the eighties. Um, mm. So I, I think the, my first question is that are we where are we at right now four years after of this vision that you laid? Are we able to already use our hands like in Minority Report and <laughs> direct games by kind of uh, casually just saying that more forest here. So it's fascinating. No, not exactly in that sense. But what's fascinating is what happened in text and image generation since March 2018. There's been an extreme um, sort of increase in the capacities of text and image generation um, and methods. So basically, we have what you could call a self-supervised learning explosion, mm -hmm. um, and in particular, the use of transformer networks. Um, so we have GPT-2 and GPT-3 and all various kind of like um, 
um, open source variations of this, um, such as Bloom, and they can complete text for you and basically carry out instructions to um, to write particular texts at shockingly good standard pretty often. Have we been able to um, uh, um, harness that to make games? Not really. There's stuff like AI Dungeon, which is an attempt to make like a complete um, uh, AI-based sort of text text model-based gameplay. It's interesting, but not a good game and not coherent because um, it's sort of these... um, uh, these text generators behave like their own asset. Um, then there's like a series of image generators that have also in the same time made um, the same kind of like um, extreme um, advances, including DALI, DALI 2, and now recently Stable Diffusion, which is available for anyone. You type in text and you get pictures, and it's amazing. So text and pictures, we've had like a revolution in, in, in our ability to create that with AI methods. Will that is that enough to create games? No, because text and images don't kind of they don't really need to work. They don't need to function. Um, mm. uh, what um, what we have in games is we have functionality constraints. So a game level is as much an image that needs to look good, sort of um, that needs to look, um, look good in terms of visual aesthetics, as it is program code. If the game level looks nice, but it is. Um, but it's not completable, then it's crap. It's like it's worth zero. Um, uh, you you can't play it. Um, and play, um, sort of your players are gonna throw the controller in disgust at the screen. Um, uh, so 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 basically, you need to generate with functionality constraints in mind. And I think we're going to gradually figure out how to take these advances. Um, for example, Dali and um, Stable Diffusion are based on something called diffusion models, which is a new kind of self-supervised learning advance. We have something we came up with in parallel that is very similar, but does take functionality constraints into account. We have something we call the path of destruction, where we... Path just of destruction. Yes. Did I get it right? Lovely. It's a self-supervised learning algorithm that is applicable to game levels. Um, and it works a little bit like a diffusion model. We published mm-hmm. it this year. We're very... Um, because basically, you can train it on just a few examples of game levels, and it gives you a lot more game levels in that sense that are in in that style that are unique and generally sort of um, constrain certain or generally sort of keep certain uh, properties of the game levels you train it on. So that's pretty. Um, this is pretty exciting, but we're not there yet. We're not at the point where you can set it like, oh, make make a level, okay, make it a little bit more difficult, okay. Um, make it more interesting, you know, mm. and more, you know. I do think we're going to get there, um, especially with these advances in text and image generation. Yeah. So I, I myself, I've been dabbling into mid-journey uh, as one of these kind of tools. And it's, it, 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 as far as I understand, as a kind of very layman person on this, is that the past year has been... Yeah. like a, a, absolutely amazing like a sci-fi pro- progression in yes. in in the area of those tools and even the past months basically. right right so we're yeah. very much on the kind of a curve now living through history being written 
Yeah. So it's kind of uh, tying that back to your this bold statement of that humans are not really creative. Me as a creativity researcher, I I totally agree that it's 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 kind of it is the value of the humans that we think that it's unique, but it's also a struggle. How do we teach people to be uh, creative? How do we train ourselves to be creating? How do we maintain creativity? So when, for instance, I've been doing mid journey prompts, which is like text. like I have to come up with this text to uh, give to the AI to create images that I would like to see. Uh, so I obviously realized that <laughs> I'm not super creative with my prompts. So I've heard that some people use exactly this kind of text generation tools then to <laughs> create the prompts. So you just yeah, kind of shame. basically just do the minority report with these tools. I think it's true because we sort of, the way I've been seeing this for a long time is that we're moving the creativity up the chain. Mm. So we're getting algorithms to take care of more and more for us. And now we have algorithms that can create um, uh, complete um, images of sometimes good quality, but getting to do what you want um, requires like knowledge of the tool mm. and making something new is something worth thinking about um, requires um, that you have good ideas and good ideas are well there's always an infinite supply of these but having the right ideas it's that um, that's hard i've started visualizing my palms and sometimes it's pretty good i bought my mom a new washing machine recently um from the brand bosch and they, they're known for quality household appliances um and then i was thinking bosch like Euronymous bosch what if the washing machine was made by Euronymous Bosch, the um, Northern Renaissance uh, painter known for his uh, bizarre and extremely detailed paintings? Um, so I started asking Stable Diffusion to visualize um, washing machines made by Euronymous Bosch. I mean, this is just its just a silly pun, but then you get mm. very cool results coming out of it. It's very interesting, very evocative, like, you know, what is... Um, <laughs> <laughs> washing machines during early modernity <laughs> yeah um, I... yeah yes so so i think we have a tool mm. um it's it's uh, we have a new tool and it's marvelous and it's fantastic now we need to figure out what is our role what is our creativity mm. in regards to this tool i guess like also mid journey just a couple of days ago they were they were framing this as a toy uh, mm. that people play around with and it's exactly like this joy that I have with it is to the curiosity that what what this thing that I'm thinking might be interpreted by the AI and whether yeah. I'm able to give the prompts that are fitting to that. I, I think I think it's been con- um, or it is being compared to the advent of photography. Um, mm. So when like 150 years ago, when cameras uh, burst onto the scene. It's a strange metaphor in this case. But anyway, um, and some artists were furious. They were like, this is the death of art. Um, mm. um, and others were like, this is marvelous. You can just point and click at something you get. And, and it caused like a huge, um, a huge sort of um, reconfiguration of art, in particular painting. Because there's a lot of painting that was really just about as naturally as possible picturing someone or something mm. that suddenly lost its market. Mm. Then painting had to be, come up with new ways of being relevant. Um, yeah. And we got lots of amazing modernist um, art styles coming out of it. 
So uh, I think it's um, I think it's great what's happening. Some artists are very upset about it, um, and sure, you can I can understand that. But at the same time, there's so many so many possibilities, so much new stuff. I mean, what it even means to be someone who creates images is going to change. I think mm. we're going to in take these generators into our tool set mm. and maybe this is going to be the case with game design soon as well yeah so looking forward to that what's going to happen because i know that a lot of game developers at least at least here in finland they are also ex- uh, exploring these tools using yeah. them uh you know just not ne- not necessarily yet in the production pipelines but figuring out how how does that frame their practice in a new way and what what could be the best usage of those yeah. But is there, you know, obviously there's other stuff also happening. Uh, yeah. The the latest game that you referred in the 2018 lecture was No Man's Sky. So is there like new, interesting pieces from the AI perspective that came out within this four years period that you would like to highlight? No Man's Sky keeps being relevant because they keep reinventing the game. It is <laughs> right. you played it back in 2017 and you played now. It's very, very different, and it's just like so much more stuff in it. It's like the generative capacity of that game are amazing. I mean, they actually are doing the things that people thought that they would be doing back in 2017, generating whole storylines and stuff like this. Um, it's it's an amazing sandbox. So yeah, so to to some extent, No Man's Sky has sort of defended its place there. Otherwise, um, in terms of big budget games, I haven't seen much that pushes AI forward in an mm. interesting way recently. Progress in, in tying procedural content generation into um, the rest of the pipeline, when, or like in tying procedural generation into how you make a game. So basically, people have, designers have become better at making great games with PC as part of it, such as Hades. Hades is, I think, is a fantastic. I mean, it's a fantastic game in so many ways, but not least because of how naturally the procedural content sort of suffuses the game and sort of um, it's just like um, fits so well. And I think we're going to see much more exploitation with procedural content in there. So at the same time, the content generation in the game is very, very simple. Um, in terms of like age playing games um yeah not much in commercial games that we've seen there is work in in, in um uh, from the research world we've seen um as i mentioned before reinforcement learning of greater generality that's um, that's very strong there's um a, a series of papers from google and DeepMind this year the multi-game decision transformer is one paper and gato a generalist agent is another one that have um shown um that you can actually generalize for the first time really shown that you can generalize skills between games and i think that's going to be very impactful um and putting my company hat on yeah um, i was about to ask that yeah. Yeah, yeah this is stuff that we are building on these insights and related methods in a model ai because we're sort of we're working on bots that can play games in the first instance for playtesting because any game um, uh, development, um, uh, any game development pipeline has a lot of game testing, but also for um, uh, later, further down the line for agents in, for example, multiplayer team games and so on. So you can sort of get rid of some of these pesky humans. No, but <laughs> so you're, not, so you're not reliant on having humans in all these roles. Mm. And so so um, yeah, so there's real research advances, but 
they're not there in real games yet. It's actually in in terms of agent AI in AAA games, it's very it's been standing still for quite a few years. Um, mm. As far as I'm concerned. so we do for a revolution. <laughs> so what which part of the kind of uh, uh, AI generation or AI related tools? Do you most kind of uh, look forward to the uh, commercial game productions to start using more, or where in which areas you want the advancements to happen? I think what's going to happen is better, um, better human-like behavior in games for testing mm-hmm. game NPCs for all kinds of things, um, and that's like movement and actions and so on. <laughs> Then, relatedly, we're probably going to see um, loosening up of the traditional dialogue structure because really dialogues with NPCs have been not much has happened since the 80s you know we still have dialogue trees and it's really sort of um uh it's really boring well it's kind of tough to say nothing much has happened I mean there's there's been like some advances but it's um and there's been some examples like facade of like mm-hmm. doing very differently um uh, and there's like you know small um sort of um user interface um user in, in interactions to kind of um, uh, improvements such as the Mass Effect series and so on. But I think that we're going to see um, dialogue that's at least partly based on language models um, come out soon. And the challenge really here is tying the structure of a designed, um, of a designed uh, narrative and uh, designed kind of information spreading together with uh generating dialogue and it's going to be interesting to see how that happens we're running out of time but i still i kind of i really want to ask this question which is like i'm not sure how big of a rabbit hole this is going to get us into but we've been we've been talking about also quantum technologies and that's one of the like it's it's such a kind of baby stage still but it's also advances super fast so Right. There is there is also this procedurally generated content and what the quantum yeah. computers could do. But what what do you think? Like, what is the best kind of a benefit of the future of those computers and and tools and and services that uh, because they are going to be still, I guess, in big rooms, so they are not in the, the the tables of the players in a while. So what's gonna what's gonna that do to the AI? related tools in in game development it's a very interesting question indeed um and it is a big rabbit hole i think <laughs> you know, there's, there's definitely the um the, the aspect of teaching people about how quantum phenomena works and basically mm. games that sort of impart some understanding of these very counterintuitive happenings and i think games are because of the procedural nature games are kind of perfect for this um Could you also use quantum technology, um, quantum computing, to actually improve games? I think there probably is a an opportunity within large scale content generation. Um, mm-hmm. We use the it's not necessarily massive parallelism itself, but like massive dependencies, um, because if you generate an image. Um, Uh, then you're sort of, it's great if it fits together, but it doesn't really need to. It can be locally invariant. But if you need to generate like a complex storyline or a complex sort of set of mechanics in the game, 
everything really depends on, on, on everything else. And that's how the functional dependencies is how a lot of game content generation differs from, for example, image generation. Mm. And it's not as simple as just putting a diffusion model in. And I guess at some point, quantum computing technologies could actually help do that. Because basically, it's about settling the state of a system um, where a lot of things depend on each other. And generating a whole world with complex dependencies which still need to check out. Um, I do think there is some way that, that quantum computing could be useful. But yeah, that's not going to happen tomorrow or, or even someday. <laughs> That's uh, clearly some years off. <laughs> yeah, but also like similarly that the image generation techniques and technologies have been improving with a very fast pace mm -hmm. for the past year or a couple of months already. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that the, some of the advancements that are happening in quantum technologies are just also like surprisingly fast. Yeah. Um, so me saying that they are not on the desk desk of of uh, players in any time soon could be also false. Uh, but at the moment they need a lot of like cooling power. Yeah. Um, also, isn't it like did I understand correctly that uh, Dal E or Midjourney they also use supercomputers? You yeah. can actually get stable diffusion to run on your local machine. I I mostly use it on in in the cloud via Dream Dream Studio mm. because it's. Uh, because it's faster and easier, but I actually have it running on my local Mac M1, as my MacBook. It doesn't necessarily need all the all the calculation power. No, it kind of <laughs> it it kind of stretches my MacBook a little bit of limits, but but it works locally, which is pretty interesting. Um, but then again, I mean, if we're looking at quantum computing things, um, I mean, it will definitely happen in the cloud anyway. Yeah, so in far quantum. that's what we. The understanding yeah. is of some of the current technological changes are more on the serious side, like uh, VR or quantum computers. So, for instance, quantum computers can help us uh, deal with very complex things of the molecular structure and things that were not able to be calculated with even supercomputers. I mean, there are ways of using it for anything which are very, very complex dependency dependency yeah. network. Yeah. And and uh, if you're using it to figure out chemical interactions. Well, interactions between game mechanics and about like story elements are also a little bit like that, right? Indeed. <laughs> so no more story trees or it's just more dynamic things. That uh, yes, you get like extremely complex worlds where the player is absolutely lost. Yeah. No, <laughs> but then we need AI to sort of help make it understandable to people. Yeah. We could basically completely reimagine how stories are told and what, what they are. That's kind mm. of cool. Wow! We, yeah, rabbit hole talking about that. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to end this now. <laughs> so there's so much so much more to explore. If you want to uh, follow Julian's work, uh, what would be the what would be the best place to follow you? I mean, just take my last name Togelius T O G E L I U S, and um, there's only seven of us in the world, and only one of us were on AI actually publish anything. So actually, I had an uncle that published a few papers on saliva in, in, in the 80s. But, uh, <laughs> but as I'm very easy to find. Um, type my name in and find me on Google Scholar, look at recent stuff. My webpage is always horribly out of date. There's also my Twitter account, um, which is Togelius, um, T-O-G-E-L-I-U-S. 
um, where you might get my extremely bad puns. You know, now that I'm actually a dad, I have a license for infinite dad jokes um, <laughs> and, and other things. But but I also post money research there. <laughs> yeah. And as a last tip for the uh, listeners, like, what are your tips and tricks to follow what's happening on the scene of uh, games? Uh, unfortunately twitter <laughs> it is it is twitter is the worst the worst thing in the world but it's very useful um yeah. <laughs> follow follow the best good, good creators i mean there's a bunch of um people if you're interested in the kind of research um i'm doing i mean follow prominent researchers on there that do various things like mike cook does a lot of very cool stuff um um, Kate Compton, to take a name from someone we had at our AMA school recently, does a lot of stuff in the generative space. I have my colleague, Yorgos Anakakis, and uh, Sebastian Risi, that also do really related stuff. So, and, and, and there are very, very many more. Start following one and keep keep going on there. There's also, oh, I need to um, give a shout out to Tommy Thompson's AI and Games YouTube series. If you like watching videos, Tommy Thompson, um, the guy with a Scottish accent, is a very contagious Scottish accent. He has uh, um, a series of YouTube videos, um, like a lot of them. I mean, I don't know, he made hundreds about AI in various games, and they're very watchable and good, and you learn stuff. Oh, that's a wonderful tip. It's it's a great place to also stop. So th- yeah. thank you, Julian, for looking back to your 2018 lecture and sharing the insights of the future, I guess. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Mikasa. Thanks for inviting me. Have a great day. <laughs>